From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hey, it's Ross Helderman from The Post calling. How are you? Hey there, it's Sungman from The Post. Um, hey, it's Dave Farron from The Post. Have you got a second talk? This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Tuesday, July 13th. Today, the controversy over COVID vaccine boosters, Japan's Olympics problem, and the season of wedding burnout. What the CDC and the FDA were saying is that right now, we do not need to give people a third shot, a boost, superimposed upon the two doses you get with the mRNA and the one dose you get with J&J. Last Sunday, Dr. Anthony Fauci went on CNN to answer questions about the need for vaccine boosters. This all started last week when Pfizer announced that it was going to seek emergency authorization from the FDA for a booster shot it had developed. Yasmin Abutalib covers health policy for The Post. That resulted in this unusually public spat between Pfizer and the health agencies. After Pfizer announced that, the Department of Health and Human Services put out an emphatic rebuke and said Americans do not need a booster at this time. Other health officials said science would dictate the timing and the FDA and CDC would decide when and if it was appropriate. So then the following day, Dr. Fauci said that Pfizer CEO Albert Borla called him and apologized because Pfizer hadn't given the U.S. government a heads up that it was going to seek this authorization. But that opened up this conversation into the public about whether some segments of the population might need a booster shot because there is some data indicating that even if you're fully vaccinated, especially in the elderly and the immunocompromised, that immunity wanes over time. And there's a lot of concern about this Delta variant, which is highly transmissible and is now the most dominant strain in the United States. Yes, I mean, you know, it feels like this is a conversation that suddenly I'm having with everyone in my life. Of, should I get a booster? And what if I were to get like another Pfizer shot? Or is this going to be part of our future? And I think that's a reflection of concerns about the Delta variant. I think that's a reflection of many of us hearing stories about people who are vaccinated still getting COVID. So I think it's worth just talking for a second about like, what actually is a booster? Is this basically taking the same dose of, you know, the Pfizer? or Moderna vaccine that you would get in your first or second shot and just getting a third one? That's basically what it is. So right now we're only talking about Pfizer since they're the ones who've announced that they're developing this booster shot and they want the authorization for it. But that's exactly what it would be for people who had two doses of the Pfizer shot and are fully vaccinated. This would be a third shot six to 12 months after they received the second shot. And the idea is that it basically boosts your antibody levels to about five to 10 times the amount that you get after the second dose, or at least that's what Pfizer is saying that their data shows. So when we talk about a booster shot, like, is that a different shot from the doses that we have already received? Like, are they reaching into the drawer and taking out the same thing they would have given us in dose one or dose two and just giving us another shot? Or is this a different shot that has to get approved differently? This is a different shot that has to get approved differently. So it's not going to be super different from the first two doses. It's it's part of this, this regimen. And it, they have to submit the data showing that it's safe and effective in the same way they did for the first two doses of their vaccine. So this is slightly different. 
what would be the argument against doing it if it gives you so much more protection? There are a couple of arguments. So one is the moral argument. The vast majority of the world has yet to receive a single shot. So one of the interesting things that happened on Monday is as U.S. officials were meeting with Pfizer officials where they were making their case about why they believed a booster was necessary for some people, uh, top officials from the World Health Organization said that it was immoral, essentially, for wealthy countries to be buying third doses of a vaccine and administering third doses when so much of the world has yet to receive any vaccine. And that there there is a, a, a moral question of equity and access to vaccines to take into account here, and that the focus should be on helping other countries get vaccinated. The other thing that's given some scientists pause, not just the moral question, is how necessary it is. Yes, it does boost antibody levels. But the question is, is it significant how much people's immunity drops over six to 12 months? Is it significant enough to warrant a booster shot? And I think there are a lot of questions about that. Some people think this is a business opportunity for Pfizer. Pfizer says it's concerned because in other countries that vaccinated a large segment of the population earlier in the U.S., they're starting to see breakthrough infections and they want to start administering these shots before the U.S. gets to that point, especially with the Delta variant on the rise. And how have other countries been addressing this question of boosters? Well, you see a bit of a divide. So Israel was the, the country that was fastest to vaccinate a large portion of its population. And they announced on Monday, the same day that Pfizer was meeting with U.S. officials, that they were going to start administering booster shots to the severely immunocompromised. The United Kingdom has also announced plans to start giving booster shots to some people in the fall. So some countries are starting to do this. Uh, others are looking at it. But I think the stark divide is that it's very wealthy countries that already have a lot of vaccine doses for their residents that are able to do this. So it is a point of privilege to be able to even have that discussion when I think still three quarters of the world has yet to receive a vaccine dose. So in terms of what the CDC and the FDA are saying now, I mean, are they clear that they do not think that boosters are going to happen for us in the future? Or are they just saying for now, maybe not, but that they'll be looking more at the data to decide whether that's necessary in the future? So the, the next steps are going to be for Pfizer to actually submit its application to the FDA for this authorization. And the FDA will evaluate the data that Pfizer has, see if they make a compelling case, see if it's safe and effective, and decide whether to authorize it. And then after that, an advisory panel to the CDC, which has made decisions on a, on a number of issues related to vaccines, will decide if and whether some people should be given booster shots. So this is absolutely not being ruled out. In fact, we know from our reporting that there are several senior health officials who believe it will be appropriate to recommend boosters for some people at a point in time. But they also insist that this has to play out through a public process where all the data is evaluated and there just isn't enough data yet for them to make a decision. And if boosters were to be approved in the U.S., who would they be given to? Who are the populations of people that would theoretically need them the most? The populations that would need them most are those that are most vulnerable. So 
Pfizer is mostly focusing right now on the elderly and the immunocompromised because they're the ones where, who are most at risk. And if there is waning immunity, they would be most at risk. I think the good thing to note about the vaccines is that they are highly effective. And even if people get coronavirus, the vast majority of the time, a mild case of it, those vaccines are almost 100% effective against hospitalizations and death. But the concern is if you're looking at people who are immunocompromised, where their immune system might not mount the same kind of response that a healthy person's would with the vaccine or an elderly person or people in nursing homes, that they are just too at risk to contract even a mild case of coronavirus. And the other side of this coin is that even if they are mild cases, even if people don't end up in the hospital, you don't want the virus to keep spreading because then you keep getting variants that seem to be more infectious than the last, which we're seeing with the Delta variant. And the concern is as long as it's able to spread more transmissible and maybe eventually more deadly variants will be able to keep popping up. You know, it's interesting that we're having this conversation around boosters when still basically half of America has not yet gotten vaccinated, which in many ways is the real thing that is putting people at risk or the real reason why we're seeing a lot of these breakthrough cases of COVID, even for people who are vaccinated. So I'm wondering how we're supposed to kind of square these two things of the potential opportunities with booster shots, but also this continued concern around the number of people in the U.S. who are not vaccinated. I think that's such a great point, Martine, and a totally fair question to ask. And I think it's right that the most protective thing right now would be for as many Americans as possible to get vaccinated because so much of the conversation around boosters is about the Delta variant spreading among the unvaccinated population and inevitably people who are immunocompromised or elderly being exposed to that. But this would be much less of a risk if you had a bigger portion of the U.S. population that was vaccinated. And I think that's why you see so much of the Biden administration's focus on that. And they've actually said that in this conversation about boosters. But for them still, the number one priority is about how you reach vaccine hesitant people, how you get through to them, how you convince them to take the shot. And actually, one thing that we learned in our reporting is that there is some concern among some of the officials that if they keep having this conversation about boosters, not that it means they won't evaluate it. But what, it, what impact does that have on the vaccine hesitant? If they think, well, why would I get the shot in the first place? It's not going to work. I'm just going to have to get another one again. So you can see it playing a role in every one of their decisions, or at least how they decide to talk about these things publicly. Is there a future where we keep having to take boosters for COVID forever? I think there is some concern that we're having this conversation so soon and people wonder, what does it mean going forward? How often are they going to have to get vaccines? How protective are the vaccines really? And I think there's still a divide on that question. There are some scientists who think the vaccines offer superb protection and people might not need boosters for a little while. Pfizer is obviously making an argument that some people are going to need it just six to 12 months after they receive the vaccine. So I think the simple answer is we don't know yet, and it's going to take some time to know because COVID is still so new. So much of the science we're learning in real time, and I think that makes it very anxiety-inducing for a lot of people because we just don't know what to expect. Yasmin Abutalib is a health policy reporter for The Post. This story was produced by Jordan Marie Smith.
So last week, the organisers announced that there would be no spectators at all of the events taking place in and around Tokyo. That's the vast majority of the Olympic events that are supposed to be happening, the opening and closing ceremonies, all of the track and field, the swimming, you name it, almost all of it will be in empty stadiums and in empty venues. Simon Denier is the Japan and Korea's bureau chief for The Post. He spoke with producer Sabi Robinson about the Tokyo Olympics and the decision to ban spectators. This is a decision taken just two weeks before the Games were due to start, which just shows you, in a sense, how difficult a decision it was to take. Ever since the pandemic came into our lives, Japan has been insisting it can go ahead with these Games. It wanted to have a full Olympics. It postponed them for one year on the idea that after a year, it would be able to hold a full Olympics with spectators. And unfortunately, last week, they effectively had to admit defeat. And that really was a very sad moment for Japan, I think, and and for the people who put so much work into organizing these games. Recently, there have been similarly large events held with spectators. NBA playoffs are happening right now, and the Euro Cup seemed absolutely packed at most of the games. So why has the Olympic Organizing Committee decided to ban all spectators in this case? It was a decision made actually by the Japanese government because of the, the politics was too risky for the government. Sports events are still taking place in Japan with limited numbers of spectators. I'm talking about baseball, uh, soccer, and sumo indoors. They've been taking place with spectators. But the Olympics has become a very, very political decision. It's really not popular having the Olympics here. People have got very worried about lots of foreigners coming in and sp- spreading the coronavirus. So the ruling party in Japan has had to deal with this public opinion all year. It stubbornly insisted the games would go ahead. But in the end, the risks to public opinion, the risks to the ruling party just became too high. It performed poorly in elections for Tokyo's Metropolitan Assembly uh, the weekend before last and largely blamed on those concerns about the Olympics, on an, on unhappiness that it was still holding the Olympics despite what the public was saying to it. We've got general elections coming up later this year and Prime Minister Suga's own position as head of the ruling party is up for reconfirmation in September. So if the Olympics go badly, then Suga could find his position as leader of the ruling party threatened. The ruling party could do badly in general elections later this year. So it was a big political risk for them to go ahead with spectators. And in the end, they just decided it was a risk they weren't prepared to take. So is the COVID situation really that bad in Japan? Or is this something where they're just being super cautious? The COVID situation isn't as bad in terms of daily infections as it is in the US, as it is in the UK. The difference is that very few Japanese people are fully vaccinated. So a lower level of infections here can translate 
into deaths can still be very risky. It's a very complicated story, but essentially the government is extremely bureaucratic. It demanded that vaccines be tested in Japan among Japanese people before they could be used on Japanese people en masse. Uh, and that slowed the process down quite significantly. There's a general sort of certain amount of vaccine concern here, vaccine skepticism, and that made the government go very slowly, initially, kind of just testing it on a few health workers to check it was okay, check there were no side effects. Now we're looking at having everybody over 65 vaccinated by the end of July, but the vast majority of people under 65 will remain unvaccinated when the Olympics begin on July 23rd. So how are people feeling about these games now that there aren't going to be any spectators? Does it seem like for the public who didn't want these games to happen, who maybe thought these foreigners were going to come into the country and bring COVID, it seems as if maybe this is a solution or is there just still a lot of anger around the fact that these games are taking place when the country isn't so prepared? I mean, I think most people are asking, you know, what's in it for Japan? Bar owners, restaurant owners I've been speaking to, you know, they're closing their doors, some of them, for the Olympics because they're just so fed up and they don't want to take any risks. The sponsors, you know, they're cancelling events. They're not allowed to bring clients into the stadiums. You know, the hotels, the tourism industry was expecting this huge boon. This huge amount of money had been spent, a huge amount of national effort to get the Olympics here. But Nobody is going to get any economic benefit out of these games, and nobody is even going to get to go along and see the games. You know, they're going to be watching it on TV just like everybody else around the world. So the problem is they've gone to all this effort, they've gone to this expense, but there's really no reward for the Japanese people. Hmm. How are athletes reacting to this news? Well, I think there's concern. I mean, you know, obviously the athletes want to compete, but I know that athletes in a lot of events get an extra boost from having fans in the venues, in the arenas. So they won't have that for a start. And then I think there's just the added concern that if the Olympics isn't popular, why am I coming? You know, I think that some athletes feel a little bit uncomfortable about going into a country that doesn't really want them there. I mean, what should our expectations for these Olympics be? Because it does make me think, like, are the Olympics really the Olympics without all the fanfare and the excitement and the payoff for the country that's having them? Yeah, I mean, I, I I do wonder if other countries actually will look at this and go, well, you know, is it really worth going to all this trouble? I mean, there's already countries that look at the amount of cost that the Olympics brings with it and wonder whether they can afford to put a bid in. You know, the pandemic is a one-off, that's fair enough, but it's just one more reason why holding the Olympics, why bidding for the Olympics may not be politically or economically that worthwhile? What if this happens again and we'll be left like Japan holding this huge bill without any reward? Simon Denier is the Japan and Korea's bureau chief for The Post. The story was produced by Sabi Robinson. This podcast is sponsored by Monarch Money. Are you saving to reach your financial goals? 
Reaching those goals isn't just about getting more money, but by managing what you have. And the best way to manage your money? Monarch Money. Monarch Money is a new kind of finance app that's intuitive, powerful, ad-free, and takes the headaches out of budgeting. Try it free when you go to monarchmoney.com podcast. Monarch puts all your accounts, investments, transactions, and finances at your fingertips. With a complete view of your finances, you'll gain insights on your spending and find new ways to save. Plus, Monarch lets you customize your dashboard, collaborate with your partner, set custom budgets and goals, and track your progress toward them. See why Mint users are turning to Monarch Money and loving it, and why the Wall Street Journal named Monarch Money the best budgeting app overall. Get a 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash podcast. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H money.com slash podcast for your free trial. monarchmoney.com slash podcast. And now one more thing about nuptial overload. You know, I had started to hear about a lot of people who had just jam-packed wedding season schedules. There is this particular crop of people, largely people in their late 20s, whose calendars are just completely saturated with weddings. I'm Ashley Fetters, and I'm a features reporter for The Washington Post. During the pandemic, when, you know, almost almost a whole year's worth of weddings had to be canceled, one really popular solution here in the U.S. was to just push the whole event to the same date or, the, you know, the same day one year later. So the 2021 wedding season is sort of two wedding seasons in one, like all the weddings that were always going to take place this summer, plus the ones on top of that that were postponed from last summer. So I spoke to a handful of people about this, and while they were all really excited to be, you know, attending weddings again and like out of the house again, period, they did describe this sense of wedding fatigue that has quickly started to kind of creep in. They're they're mentally exhausted and they're physically exhausted, and they're also, you know, financially drained. All the traveling adds up really fast. Hotels are expensive, flights are expensive. Also, there are wedding gifts to think about, sometimes bachelor and bachelorette parties. One guy I spoke to said he and his girlfriend are just knowingly racking up credit card debt to be at all 10 weddings they're invited to this year. Maybe this is a reset for weddings in general. Maybe, you know, the heartache and the hassle of rescheduling this big blowout day and having to cancel a big blowout day when this force majeure thing happens will sort of force people to rethink, like, is it really worth it to schedule this much on a single day anyway? Is it really worth it to do this much for one event? Maybe intimate weddings are cool. Maybe small weddings are, you know, appealing in a sort of exclusive way. (laughs) But it really seems like at least for right now, people are really going for it. People want to have big weddings. They want to see everyone. I think this summer, especially, there's a real appeal in like, I'd like to see everyone that I haven't seen for 14 months at my wedding or at this wedding that I was invited to. I do think there's sort of a swing back in that direction toward, you know, appreciation of opportunities to meet new people and see a lot of people you haven't seen in a while. I think people are appreciating that right now. I don't know if it'll last forever. You know, somebody asked me when I was um, putting the story together, like, why don't people just not go to a wedding? I think it comes down to this question of like, why does anyone have a wedding in the first place? And I do think it's because you only get so many opportunities while you're alive to get everyone you love in the same place. To know that you were invited to someone's wedding for that reason, I think a lot of people do feel like, okay, this person wants me there on one of the biggest days of their life. I'm going to go. It might be a hassle. It might be a burden, but I will show up for this, you know, and showing up for other people is it's special. And it's something that I think a lot of people are finding a lot of joy in doing right now. 
Ashley Fetters is a features reporter at The Post. The story was produced by Ariel Plotnick. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was mixed by Maggie Penman. If you have heard anything on our show lately that has delighted you or surprised you or opened your eyes to something that you didn't know before, let us know. Leave us a review on your podcast app and tell us what you thought. We love hearing feedback from listeners. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.